Okay, do you want to just chat for a minute? To the wife, I said, and what God it going to be? It's something like, and another one was in here when he <laughs> fell off, and wasn't him, it was his <laughs> mama, and then fucking dogs. Welcome to the Buskers Hall of Fame. My name's Chris Lyon, and we're going to have a little chat with Amy Saunders to find out what I know about Street Before Me. That'll do. <laughs> <laughs> Happened when punk happened because you were right there with your multicolored hair on the piazza. It's actually completely before punk because you're playing the King's Road before it became punk, and then you fucking multicolored your hair. Well, the same with the material is as well, and the name because in those early days when I started getting bookings at festivals, Chris Langham was quite popular then as a comic actor. We were getting confused bookings, so I went, Oh, fuck this, and changed my name to Chris D. D-E-P-Y-S-S Nice And that's where Chris the Piss came from Chris the Piss, yeah So I worked that And that was That's a kind of punk Really? You You are the original punk Punk is a great way of describing Chris Lanham's approach to clowning and performance He's so full of anarchy and raw comedic energy That it's sometimes hard to know what's going to come next Sure, he's got pieces he's become legendary for I'm thinking of the finale where he stands naked with a firecracker between his butt cheeks which spews a fountain of sparks while Ethel Merman's classic rendition of There's No Business Like Show Business players from the sound system. But it's his balls-to-the-wall fearlessness when it comes to improvisation that really sets him apart. I got to witness this in action when Chris performed at the Vancouver Comedy Festival in the early 90s and was both immensely entertained and emotionally exhausted because what I witnessed radically challenged my notions of what a comedy show could be. But punk can scare people as much as it entertains them. Not playing it safe during a career that spanned more than four decades has certainly come with its fair share of challenges, as well as so many great stories from the pitch. So, Mr. Lynham, when did you start? Uh, 1973. I woke up one morning and said I want to be a clown and tried to get into the only school available then was Lecoq School in Paris, which I made an application for and after a few months got accepted one of 80 acceptees of 3,000 applicants or something. Wow. But with that came the demand for the first year's payments was 2,000 francs. Where did you come from? Uh, Zimbabwe. I born and grew up there. Right. And in fact, that's where I first got the taste of performing was when I was 13, I sold Coca-Colas at a Salisbury show. Salisbury Rhodesia it was then. Right. And the second year I went to sell Cokes at the Luna Park again. It just happened to be in the right time and place where there were two RAF guys who in their month's holidays every year used to do a Raja Fakir act at the Luna Park. And they were just saying to the owner, oh, we need someone to help us out with the afternoon shows because it's too much, you know, doing 50 shows a day or whatever it was. So I went, oh, yeah, I'll do that. And they taught me to stick nails at the nose, <coughs> line a bed of nails, walk up razor-sharp blades, blow fire, and started learning how to sword swallow. But, yeah, so that's a big practice, isn't it? So I, I did two weeks of that. Were you um, doing 15 shows a day when you did No, that? no, no, I just used to do four or five. So they'd do ten and you'd do four or five? Yeah. Well, it was always a double act, and then I'd slip in and do, you know, one bloke would always present, and one bloke would do the stuff. Right. And did they get yeah, paid in the hat? I mean, was that... No, 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 they, they were booked, I think. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So they gave It was like a sideshow. Incredible little side story here, too. I was doing a show in the afternoon once, and part of the routine was get a guy up. Who wants to stand on the guy on the bed of nails? Yeah, 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 yeah. come on up there. And they got this drunk black guy. And you can't say no once a guy's gone in the air and he's yeah. up there. So they've got him up on the thing and he's going, yeah, looking out to the audience, going, yeah, look at me. Uh, and then he looks down at me and says, oh, white guy, anyway. G. 
jumped on me like that, man. Oh! oh man, they peeled me off. That thing. Oh, on the bed of nails. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh! Only four punctures. It was amazing. Oh, fuck! How deep did the punctures go? Well, you know, just broke the skin in there. Have you still got scars? Yeah. Jesus. Jesus, that was fifty years ago. Yeah, but a big black guy jumping on a small little fourteen-year-old <laughs> on a bed of nails. I've <laughs> 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 always wondered how how that would actually go. Actually, <laughs> just you to know. Do you know what? I can't remember the pain of it at all, but I remember the incident. Yeah. Oh. And then I used some of that stuff, well, the fire blowing and yeah. sticking a nail up my nose. And then just mixed in stupid magic, you know, disappearing socks and audience's sock. Yeah. Know. So when did you come over from Zimbabwe? 71. So how old were you then? 17. And did you come over with your folks or by no, yourself? Just by yourself? Yeah, it was time to go. You know, they wanted me to join the army and all that bollocks. So, mm, I'm busy. And <laughs> did you know that you wanted to come over to wherever else? Oh, uh, well, London. No, no, no idea about that. You just knew you wanted to get the yeah, hell out and not be in the army. Oh, it was the 60s, mate. You know, it's early 70s. London was the place. It was so much happening yeah. there, you know. So where did you first start playing? First gig was with a man called Chris Fairbanks, who's now quite a famous voiceover artist and actor. He's done a bit of that Good. man in all that. And where did you first Kings Road, father and two children. Totally crap. Really rubbish show. But enough there that you went, oh, man, I want to do this. And so just built from that. And yeah. what were you doing? Oh, the ridiculous stuff. Strong man, you know, bending a coat hanger. I've always been a bit of an improv kind of person, playing with what's happening, you know. Yeah. And um, when you started in King's Road, were you literally <laughs> on the pavement? Yeah. <laughs> were you playing to <laughs> the that traffic? tiny little corner. You know where it bends there, there's that tiny little corner. And there's yeah. only, if it was packed, it would only be 20 people, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and that was full clown makeup stuff, you know, that white face nonsense. And so uh, that was back in 73, and that was with Chris? Yeah. Okay, and how long did you two last together? Oh, the Maestro Barney Complex went on for about six months. It actually developed into a trio. Who came into it? A girl called Kim Solomon. Yeah. She was a kind of musician. Really. So did she support you guys while you... She played trumpet, and I, I was playing banjo and guitar and stuff there, and wind instruments. I've always been drawn to specific instruments, not necessarily a type. Yeah. You know, an instrument would show up and go, oh, this is nice, Ooh, nice sound, play with it. Yeah. Oh, no, hang on. Did you get the money together to go to Paris, or did that just fuck no, off? No, no, no. Right. I dumped it. No, that was impossible. So you're the man who turned down Lecoq? Lecoq fell in Lecoq. So how long did it take you from dicking around in the King's Road with two people to realise that there was actually... Because back in the 70s, I don't know what the street scene was like. No, then. they weren't as determined as I was. You know, yeah. Chris had an acting career he was pursuing, and Kim had a um, music stuff. So quite often I'd just go out on my own. And the pictures I used to play at were um, Portobello Road. I used to play at Speaker's Corner. That was hilarious. Brilliant. Because you couldn't play there. You know, you, you couldn't busk and you no. couldn't play instruments. The police would always be watching. <laughs> And so I'd make the sound of what the, I'm not allowed to play this here, but it sounds like I teach you all the You know, so it was this constant battle with what you couldn't couldn't do. So yeah. You're not allowed to collect money. So did you after Lecoq had gone the way of many and you start doing straight forward, did you know what you wanted? It's never left me actually, just that realisation one morning I I want to be a clown. I.e. make people laugh. So yeah. That's what's driven me for 40 years in this business. See, some of the best clowning I've ever seen has come from you, and it was three incidents. There was uh, me happening upon you a few years ago in Covent Garden, 
about four years ago now, Friday night, and you were just running in a show with... Oh, uh, with the boys. With the boys, because you had a festival in, in Italy or something, yeah. yeah. And it was a late show, and you had a so you had this beautiful backdrop of a structure of a show, and then you had bits built in, which were, of course, brilliantly just anarchic from your front, where the guy comes out, juggling music, and you just shoot him straight in the head and go, fucking hate juggling, and move on. So that's, <laughs> that's actually a structured bit, but the play you were doing with the audience, I'd never seen anyone play that hard with them and make me laugh so much. It was amazing, and that was only four yeah, or five years ago. Yeah, the thing is, it was only you laughing. None of the audience were, were they? They were terrified. Well, <laughs> no, they were laughing. They were laughing, and it, but again, it's that thing of... Punch and Judy were probably laughing more than the small scared child that you just made cry but <coughs> my god they were laughing <laughs> and then I remember seeing you downstairs at the King's Head Captain Kino took me along this would be about ten years ago I reckon and I'd never seen anyone that. you did the, the bit your cowboy bit and you pulled a guy out from the audience going do you know do you know how to play the piano no perfect like, and it was just beautiful oh, world yeah, yeah. Great. bang 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 like that and then seeing you in Slava in Paris because I'd seen Slava's Snow Show at that point about four times, and watching you be able to take your clown, sounds so wanky, but to take your clown and have to put it in that structure but still not lose any of the anger, not lose any of the wry amusement and the sort of, the, the sort of bitter anger, but there was the, the, just the intensity all still there within his framework. So it's like, I think you've done that, but I don't think you get the just desserts that you should have. Yeah. Which is the fucker with this business? Mm. Is that the the good ones don't necessarily get ahead? Yeah. Um, oh, it's all just time and placing, yeah. really. And in the case of building a big show, having backing behind it, yeah. You know, I've got a new character now that is it's my pension. It's fantastic, Eric the Fred. Eric white, the Fred, white face, silent, beautiful, absolutely tragic, bored. The only way that's going to work is if you know, spend the hours getting an arts council grant or get someone behind it. But, you know, that's all going in the right direction. Do you feel like it was easier to manage to get stuff done back in the day or now? Uh, Much easier then. You know, you'd never get Ken Kangwas doing the warp up in Edinburgh in 78. What was the warp? The warp was a 24-hour long play written by a poet and it proceeds the beat generation. So it's 58 to 78 is that time frame it was written in and we did it at the ICA ran it in there just doing a play a night and then two halves and then about five shows of the full 24 hours wow. and it was just a phenomenal piece of historic work it's just incredible what this poet Neil Oram incorporated in his life it just it, it was everything all the spiritual stuff Krishnamurti and travelling around you know all that backpacking stuff and so it's interesting because I think with your stuff you've actually straddled quite a lot of genres like you've got your sort of high-end <coughs> clowning in, around Europe as it were um, you've got sort of surreal comedy and you've got all the alternative comedy you've also got sort of the bog standard street you understand all of uh, the how street to move is just a, you know a good street festival you can't beat you know really I've done a couple in Europe this year that you know just the improv stuff that happens yeah. when people haven't paid to come and sit on a seat you know or be in a cabaret situation is just phenomenal and then when there's no roof it, it does change it as well doesn't yeah, it yeah. when did you end up in Covent or what happened from Portobello to Covent uh, well I used to work from a bicycle you know so I'd have all my stuff in a trailer when I had the big stuff I used to do one man band stuff with banjo hi hat and a massive bass drum <laughs> ridiculous <laughs> marching drum you know playing the hi hat and drum with the feet and standing up playing the banjo and screaming at people mm-hmm. it was funny and so you know you do a couple of shows 
at Portobello, which was mainly frequented by musicians, or I used to call them the Chain Gang in the early 70s. And they were two old guys who I think were the only street performers in London then. And they used to do an escapology thing, just straight jacket chains all around and all that. And were they funny? No. <laughs> 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 but, you know, that's yeah. what the thing was, and it was all that. Da, da, da. So it was entertaining, because there's nothing else to compare it with in the street, you know. Oh, look, here's these guys tied up, now they're going to escape. Way! Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so um, I used to cycle around, always looking for another pitch, and... Covent Garden, I used to go to Covent Garden a couple of years prior to that. When I first came to London, we used to shop at Covent Garden at, at 6.30 in the morning. Andy and I used to go there, and we used to have a communal meal every day at 6.30 or 6 or something, where everybody paid 5p and that bought rice, and then Andy and I used to go down to Covent Garden and get the thrown-away vegetables and fruit. Yeah, fruit and six, yeah, 6.30 in the morning. So I knew the layout of what it was, yeah. and then used to cycle around there when it was derelict. Derelict? Yeah, it was derelict for ages. In fact, Friends Roadshow, a uh, bunch of clowns, I suppose he was a bit of an influence, Django Edwards and Johnny Melville, those guys were around doing clowning at that time. In Covent Garden? No, no, no. The reason I mentioned Friends Roadshow is because they were offered a warehouse for £1,000 a year, rent. All of those buildings were old warehouses to do with the market, and they were all wow. empty. And Jeez. then they started regenerating from the piazza. And so I showed up there and... I can't remember this very clearly, but I know that the first few months of shows were just playing to workers, you know, because there was loads of them, you know, so... And then a few people walking around in the evenings to opera and stuff, so... But playing to workers is kind of the same as making the tech laugh, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you had some of the toughest audience at the game, yeah. you know, make them laugh, yeah. make anyone laugh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so there was no one around Covent Garden? Were you essentially... Yeah, I, I probably did... Man, I used to do six, seven, eight shows a day there because there was no one else, you know, and that's what you do. Do a show, start up, have a beer, and, uh, OK, time for another one. Did you have the big hair at pa that point? The first weird hairstyle, because like, I used to wear a hat. Yeah. And I had long hair, and I got it bleached in Vienna, actually, <laughs> by this fantastic hairdresser. And he bleached the top... Uh, so I had a top... What's they called? A fountain kind of thing. Yeah. And he had seven colours in that. <laughs> So seventy three, seventy four. So you're you know, punk, punk. punk. Yeah, yeah. You're and they used to take that hat off, and there would be this yeah. colour, you know. So that was a good laugh always. I like those little quick good laugh Me images. Too. Yeah. yeah, I've got a massive hard on for um, people who take it somewhere else where it's just about the fun, where it's just about the laugh, if you know what I mean. Mm. And it doesn't have to be a life story you're talking about. And you've always been brilliant at that. But again, that's the improvising. Were other people working at Covent at that time? Um, in the beginning, no, and then soon after, mm. a few months, I guess, uh, some of the other variety acts, Tim Bat, JJ Waller, um, John McKenna, and Randolph the Remarkable, and Pookie Snackenberger, which is Stomp. Yeah, and they were all playing Coven? Yeah, Pookie would come up from Brighton just for a test basket, but that was about six, eight months later, after the beginning of it. So how did it work pre-internet? How did it work with the getting gigs? Did people see you and then recommend yeah, you? Yeah, come to my party, come to my festival. Uh, and uh, being a traveller at heart, I've always, you know, if it's cold here, I'd go to New Orleans or something. And in those early days, man, there was this great thing they had with aeroplanes where you could be a courier, TNT and DHL and that, and they'd advertise, oh, well, you can come on our aeroplane for free, just carry hand baggage and book it up three months in advance and so people want to go to New York and they'd fly there for free and carry papers and give the papers to the guy meeting them and that guy would take the baggage and send back and you'd wow. tell them which dates 
But I used to phone up and say, you got any cancellations today or tomorrow? Yeah, where to? Tokyo. Fantastic. So I just wow. arrived in Tokyo and not know where to play. So where did you go when you were doing that? New York, Tokyo, Sydney. And how was it, did you, I mean, you were performing in Tokyo and you just dropped into mine? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the improv stuff you can do. Yeah. 20 minutes of just playing off what's there. Wow, great story in Tokyo. I wonder if this will work on radio. Do it. So they close off this one street near a whole big... It's like a busking area where full-on rock bands come on with just huge PAs and stuff. But a bit further off, there's a dual carriageway closed off, both sides of it. So I start playing there and build up a crowd, mostly on the other side of the hedge, which is two lanes over. <laughs> and it's a big edge, three, four hundred people or something. And then this tiny little policeman walks up to me. And he's walking up, going, go, 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 using both his arms, going, big cross signs. And so I go into Tai Chi poses and going, and then he's confused. So he stands next to a parking meter. So it's him, parking meter, uh, three feet away, my stuff, and then three feet further on, me standing there, me trying to cross my arms, <laughs> with his arms crossed, going, and I'm not performing. So then I pick up Harold, the breakdancing spider, one of those spongy things, and go, junk, junk, junk. It's obvious the spider's coming to get him, you better go. <laughs> he doesn't go, and, so, and uh, then he makes it smaller. <laughs> just his fingers doing the cross side. No, no, you can't play. They were both standing there as a bit of a stalemate, and I go into the bag, pull out a coin, run over and put it in the parking meter. <laughs> <laughs> Turn the knob. <laughs> just that whole sequence, just yeah. that was so beautiful, clowning, you know. That's so. Did he let you say like And then he said, but, 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 and I had a mate with me who spoke Japanese. So while he was talking to the guy about the details and where we're staying and all that, I went around and bottled this whole crowd. <laughs> 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 and he just kind of blocked it. It's just the most amazing gig. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> On that subject, what are some of the most weird or scary or horrible or brilliant things that have happened to you on the pitch? Uh, shit. Street festival in Lyon. <laughs> and um, first gig for a, a French booker so it's like but we've done loads of, they've flown over here and we've had meetings they're going to look after me in France and Belgium and Luxembourg and da 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 nice guys and he was the director of a theatre in Lyon so the first gig was the street festival that they put me on that's on there anyway and they put me on in it done the gig da 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 and there's a bit I do sometimes not so much with kids anymore where get the kid out and get him to wave at the audience and then phew, drop his pants. <laughs> it's funny. It's one of those quick, fast yeah. laughs. Except this time, the kid was about 12 and his knickers and everything came down and he stood there exposed <coughs> and he didn't fucking budge. Normally a kid just goes, oh, and pulls it out straight away. But this kid just stood there frozen and looked down and I was like, oh, God. And it wouldn't go, so I had to pull his pants up and shoot him off to the side, and the parents were livid at the end of it. And that, oh. Oh. So that's a real kind of, oh, no. <laughs> not, no. And it is, oh, no, not, oh, no, I've damaged the kid's psyche. It's like, oh, no, the booker was here. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was just a horrible moment. That kid I felt for him, you know, it was just horrible. Shame. Funny when it happens, doesn't it? Yes. Mm, well, it's a good gag, but. You know, so many of them uh, get, you know, plagiarism is a terrible thing. So sometimes I don't do street, real street, so much anymore. 
I find it hard now. I don't know how people make money. Oh, I do. Street performing has become so formulaic, you know, that if you mm. don't fit into that, start talking about money after 10 minutes or mm. even at the beginning and the whole thing and then giving a kid money for doing some mundane thing and but money, money, money the whole way mm. through and you have to get up high on a tightrope or a fucking unicycle or something or throw a chainsaw at a bloody elephant. Mm. You know, if you don't do any of that, you don't fucking get the money at the end. It's a strange one, isn't it? Because it does genuinely feel like, I mean, the people I admire pretty much across the board are people who seem to come from that creative period between, like, the, I suppose it's 80s, bit of the 90s, where they really had the street as a playground. But mm. also where the, and I don't know how this worked, but where the audience also paid for the playground. They did, they, you know, yeah, yeah. now I, I've seen it too many times where you do you put a, a sort of hack, standard formula high pack on, and you put a really fucking high quality non high pack on, and the audience just don't pay for it. Yeah. But they enjoy themselves more at that one. And, yeah. I, and I don't know when that stopped, because it's about, yeah. I mean, I, what, I don't pay for a high pack unless. No, I don't pay for my back, nor do I generally watch them. But when I see quality, I pay for it. I think I'm in a relatively small group of people who will pay for quality when they see it and won't pay mm. the stuff they've been told to pay for. That's it. I think most people aren't that discerning, really, which is a bit unfortunate. But it's weird. It's, it seems that a laugh, a laugh is worth more if there's a roof on it now or something. Because mm. for me, you can't. I, it doesn't. I don't care how amazing your skills are. Laughing is the thing I want. And the real painful laughing where you can't stop. And that comes from someone being able to play. Yeah. Doesn't matter how good your material is, you need to be able to play and play hard, but it doesn't seem to pay anymore. I don't know. Um, do you well, do any well, hatting festivals now? Hatting? Yeah. Yeah, I've done a few. This and year, have, you, have you found within that, is it it's still the same where you. No, it's a bit better. Well, some of them, it depends where. Oh, I just did a terrible. Oh, Halifax, oh my god. Is that Halifax is here? They've changed the site and everything, haven't they? Mm, I don't think so. Well, it's been the same for a few years anyway. They've made it smaller. But that was torture. Why? Uh, well, I did two good hats, but it was through telling them yeah. the truth and getting down to, oh, God, you know, I'm disappointed. And it's depressing, isn't it? Oh, no, and having done just really funny stuff. When you started getting bookings, did it mean you were playing indoors and outdoors? Or was it kind of festival? Yeah. 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 And did you find that no-brainer? Because I've found also with a lot of the high packs, for example, they just can't play indoors because they have no sort of subtlety radar. Yeah, yeah no, I play anywhere. So then how did that work? Because you were quite heavily involved with Malcolm's lot, weren't you? Yeah, and one so of the early festivals I went to... Oh, God, I'm terrible with years. Ah, the early ba um, <laughs> the hood fairs were probably early 80s, I would think. Maybe late 70s, but I think early 80s. And there was a whole string of really good festivals. Suffolk had quite a few of that, five or six. And then Glastonbury. I yeah. mean, I did the second ever Glastonbury, and then the next 17. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And that's when uh, there weren't tents. No, no, no. It was just the children's field and the main stage. And I went and played in the children's field. <laughs> and... Um, I had a chat to Arabella afterwards. Bella, you should put, make another field just for theatre and clowns and jugglers and stuff, because there were a few of us around then. Yeah. And so where did... So the reason I'm saying... Sorry, I'm just talking to North Americans now, but the reason I'm saying Malcolm is because Malcolm Hardy was the godfather of alternative comedy, as he's been labelled laboriously through time and memorial. <laughs> Starting off with his exquisite troupe of avant-garde dancers called The Greatest Show on Legs. 
which was a routine, is a routine, where you have three naked men, apart from a balloon, hiding their nether regions to a lovely dance when things go wrong. And it's very, very funny. It's very tight. I still think it's one of the best. Yeah, so that was Hood Fair where I first ever saw them, and I thought, oh man, this is great. You know, yeah. That was the first time there was a troupe of. Did they, do, did they do more? Did they just come on and do that little number? And then well, like, the or? first um, Grace John Legg stuff was just a two-hander when I first saw them, and it was predominantly a Punch and Judy show <laughs> with Malcolm Barkey and Ma Martin doing puppets. That's hilarious. <laughs> and so I can imagine you and Malcolm hit it off. Malcolm yeah, was yeah. a nutter, for the record. Yeah. Um, also founder of the best ever comedy club in the world that's ever been, the Tunnel Palladium. Oh. It's just phenomenal. Tell me about the tunnel for Oh my god. The tunnel was a pub right at the end of the Blackwell Tunnel and it was derelict all around the, this is before the, long before the dome. And on a Sunday night, Malcolm put on a night called Sunday Night at the Tunnel Palladium. Oh, brilliant. Where 600 people would come and the audience would drive the show because Malcolm was just, <laughs> his, his comparing style was just phenomenal. Whoa, wait, that was shit. You know. <laughs> I loved his intro. His intro was just the best. It's the perfect compare intro. Right, this next act might be good, might be shit. <laughs> Off. <laughs> <laughs> it's fucking true. <laughs> Essentially, it's going to fall into those yeah. two camps. <laughs> that audience would boo an act off and then boo them back on. I've seen that happen. <laughs> And so 600 people, did he just get it going Crackle. from the get-go? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How did he get 600 people? Well, it's just we all local, yeah, all Eltham, Greenwich, Woolwich. Yeah. They used to come from all that southeast London. And so did you play down the tunnel quite a lot? Yeah, I used to play the streets and then come down there so my hair would still be in a mess. Still have my costume on. And I had this running gag with Martin Potter, who is the sound guy, every week. He'd say, right, Chris, uh, four minutes, 27 seconds. <laughs> and I used to go on and be full-on mad... And the deal was I had to come in within five seconds. And man, I did just about every time. Brilliant. I'd come in with, right, six minutes, 12 seconds. It would <laughs> depend a bit on how many open spots there were. But yeah. <laughs> as often as possible, I'd have a slot. Or if someone dropped out, I'd have a slot. But open spot every week. Yeah. And it was heckle-driven, wasn't it? I mean, you had 600 yeah. people who would just... Yeah. I remember going down to a club he had later. I think it was the Banana Boat. And the week I went down, all the fucking hecklers were on holiday. I was like, this isn't a show. <laughs> And so when did you, because you still do The Greatest Show on Legs, and Malcolm died some years back in a booting accident, as it yeah. were. Much missed. Much missed. Much needed, I think. Jesus. But when, when did you start doing Greatest Show on Legs? Was that just whenever you fancied? Uh, well, I'd, ever since the first time I saw them, I thought, oh, I'd love to be in that. And then probably 10 years maybe 15 years later there was a gap where they were taking a show up to Edinburgh Malcolm was a bit of an agent for a while as well so we were in touch like that I was getting the odd gig of him yeah it was just would have come up in conversation yeah. oh doing legs and, oh I'll do that yeah or it might have been oh next time you've got a gap for the legs I'll do that and, and so yeah, I had about two full on good years of that and so sort of in the mid 80s around that were you doing were you going up to Edinburgh um, yeah. every year and doing outdoors Same and as indoors? Yeah, I did Edinburgh every year. I did about 20 of them. Street and indoor? Mm-hmm. The street wasn't uh, up on the mile then. That was proper road still. And uh, I used to play down at the mound. It was really nice down there, actually. Yeah. yeah. And what did you used to do indoors? Yeah, mostly the Gilded Balloon stuff and Fringe. Yeah. 
It's all about just doing gigs where you just follow your nose with what's happening. And someone told me, apologies, I don't know, but you had a TV series. Yeah, shot six half hours for BSB. What, BSB? British Sky Broadcasting. And then they, uh, they, the night we filmed the first two of six, they announced the merge of Sky and BSB. And... Sky for the first, I mean, even still, I don't think their comedy channel really shows. I know it's improved a bit, but in those days they just showed I Love Lucy, and so they were never going to buy my wacky shit. Shit, so I fell down through And that. plus, I had a very bad bicycle accident two weeks before we were due to film, and mushed up my jaw and mouth horribly. Oh, shit. And so that got delayed for a month, but it was still not yeah. right, you know, so it suffered a bit. But there's some good material there. The band was fantastic. Ten-piece band, I used to have. Wow. What was the yeah. show called? The Extravaganzas. That's a good name, man. So when was that? The Extravaganzas ran from about 88 to 91. So kind of through the 80s and the 90s, you were indoor, outdoor, wherever. Yeah. And as long well, as... The Extravaganzas, that 10-piece, we, we, we played Limburg Festival quite a few times with that, you know, which is... It's a 10 of you went over. Yeah. Nice. Oh, it was a big, big show in the street. We used to fly people and everything. Wow. In the street. Wow. And Streety Street as well. Yeah. Yeah. Just taking poles and fulcrums and stuff was phenomenal. So when did you meet Kate? Uh, through Malcolm. Happen? Through Malcolm. Because you and Kate do a brilliant double act, which yeah. works amazingly as MCs with your own show or outside. So Kate used to be part of uh, Denise Black and the Cray Sisters, and Malcolm was looking out. Malcolm's an old friend of Denise, and he, he said, I don't "Okay, know who I'll these people are." Oh, really? Denise no. Black and the Cray Sisters, very good. Andrew's sister's style, singing stuff with original songs written by Paul Sand. From really fantastic stuff. Three-part female harmony. Tight, fast, good songs, really good. And the first time I saw them was with Josie Lawrence. Josie Lawrence yeah. was the other Crow sister. And Ivor Dembina had a gig running in King's Cross above a pub. And I saw this gorgeous woman. I said, oh, do you want to see my... I've got this poetry gag that I do and the poetry book that I pull out with poetry written on it is um, a photograph album and so I had these photos of my double-decker bus inside it you know, <laughs> instead of this mobile theatre so I saw this you know it was a typical uh, uh, do, would you like to come up and see my stamps <laughs> 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 was, yeah, do you want to see photos of my bus and she was going Josie, Josie because <laughs> 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 uh, oh, Malcolm was managing them so I'd do stuff like Malcolm put us on the same page uh, in the brochure so then maybe we'll get gigs to <laughs> Anyway, two years later, I managed to get her to notice me. Were you together for a while before you got married, or you got married? No, we are not married. You're not married? Still testing it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but when 28 you, years, right? Yeah, amazing. When did you start performing together? Well, she was quite a successful actress when I met her, so, but we, st <laughs> we started singing. <laughs> you want to phrase that better, mate? <laughs> it's true. I fucked it up, mate. I did. I fucked her career up. <sighs> No. I did. Banged no. her up. was rude to all the directors and <laughs> agents that phoned up. No, I was, you know, I was a punk in those days. When was that, 78? I was You're still, still full punk. of that. <laughs> you know, people phone up. Hello, <laughs> would you like to think you are going to speak to Will it be today or tomorrow? You want to try again? Who is this? Oh, Marco Polo. I'm here to discover the world. <laughs> you know, <it's> some <laughs> bloody agent going, yeah, I'm putting you up for a party. And da, da, da. <laughs> 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 Maybe you not. Know, her parents wouldn't phone the house for about four months, maybe, because of the way I answered the phone. So I think I am guilty. <laughs> but, you know, we used to listen to Ella and Louis stuff, and I've always been a bit of a singer, and she's got a fabulous singing voice. So we used to just start doing that, and 
then you know, getting musos together was, was easy then. People wanted to play music. You know? Yeah. So when did the Popcorn Club come about? It was kind of the next stage. Uh, oh, extravagant. I took five years off late uh, 96 to 2000. And, um, Why? I just had enough. You know, yeah. Yeah, I'd yeah. been struggling and clawing and doing great gigs and the whole agent-manager thing just... Oh God, I just got really fed up with it. And I just said, oh. 25 years before that, I bought a big piece of rainforest in Zimbabwe. Yeah, it was 1,500 hectares, and it had 40 hectares of eucalyptus on it. Wow. And it was the last piece of lowland rainforest in the world, so I thought, oh, I'll restore that. Fuck your art. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I spent five years Back in cutting Zimbabwe. eucalyptus. Wow. Had a sawmill and all that. Rather. And then what happened? Uh, well, the whole economy there was a bit kind of... Mm, and I was keeping a house running in London still, and Kate, Kate and the kids, Kate, the kids stayed with me for a year once in that period. And so everybody used to commute a lot. Well, not me so much. But I still had a few gigs, you know, got flown over for Ponce gigs in Paris and stuff. And um, they were all going, uh, it's time to come home. So uh, I came back. And you came back and. We got straight back into show business. And that was a big struggle to get back in. Yeah. Because unfortunately, on my way out, I told everyone what I thought of the <laughs> <laughs> fucking business. And, you know, five years later, you come back saying, you know, then I said you were. Uh, I, was, uh, I wasn't really running. I was come on, <laughs> give me some stories. Who did you say oh, what to? Oh, everyone. I basically burnt my bridges, and, and many of them haven't um, been able to rebuild. But no, still? And you, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Loads of people won't book me still. That's depressing. Yeah. That's frustrating and depressing. But I do split bookers right down the middle. There's yeah. no kind of, oh, maybe, and they don't go by audience reaction. Some people just despise that wild, anarchic clown. Yeah. They frighten, they frighten a lot of bookers, you know. Because it doesn't look like it's controlled. They frighten know. Sweden. I, I, I Yeah, I assumed it was a shoe-in, because I was like, you nailed it in Sweden. And then they were like, no, not Chris. Really? Yeah. They did? <coughs> yeah, and I said, why? And they said, because he's scary. And I was like, I didn't see scary that day, but I don't. But yeah. also, I just saw an audience who were absolutely pissing themselves with glee. And yeah. glee, not, you know, it's not, not just yeah, laughter, yeah. but it's where they hey, what's going to happen next? Because I didn't fucking know. When you know what? I, I'm 60, and I just love performing so much. Until you get to a thing like this last festival I went to, which was just torture, you know. Which one was uh, this? Halifax. Yeah, man, just... Shelley, who I was dealing with, has got great intentions, great, but you'd think after 27 years they'd know how to treat artists to be comfortable when they're not performing and have pitches that weren't a fight with a bloody fairy every 10 minutes and <laughs> maybe too many shows in the heat and the end of a big summer. I was doing four shows a day sometimes and that's fine if the conditions are okay. We've got a stage and um, audiences that are paying and everything, but it's so soul destroying to pay to 400 people and make 30 bloody dollars, you know? Yeah. It yeah. just bloody hurts. Yeah. That's a point, in fairness, right? You are 60, you're in amazing shape, like physically, meaning I don't like watching weird, saggy bodies on stage, and you've got a good body on stage, you're in great shape, you can do things that a bunch of 40 year olds I know can't do. How do you manage that? Just keep doing it. You've had accidents along the way? Yeah. Yeah, broken stuff. Do you feel them now? No. It's like now I'm not as fit as I was a month ago. Because you're not gigging as much? No, I, I, I need to be doing... I do yoga to stay fit. And then the odd handstands and dance moves and stuff. 
And if I just go a week without doing it, then yeah. I feel it, you know, so... When did the Slava stuff happen? How did that happen? Uh, he's an old mate from... We were on festivals together, mid-80s, probably comedy festivals in Switzerland and stuff. And then he moved to London, and um, we used to hang out, they used to see my shows and stuff. Where did they see your show? Uh, Kent and I did a really great piece with Ken Campbell and Bernie and Kevin Sargent called Beauty and the Beast. A really good piece as well, actually. Mad. Really mad. Great clowning. Really dark. Wow. You know, getting yeah. burnt on the face by an iron in a domestic row scene. And <laughs> all the plates are broken. So it's total mad anger. Wow. And surreal film noir style sketches. And so they'd see that and then he built Snow Show and after it had been running for about 10 years, he approached me saying, oh, if you want to do this, how does Elena put it? Slava would like you to consider learning the main green and main yellow roles. Oh, really, what's the money? <laughs> so I've been doing that when there's big gaps. It's actually kept me alive a lot over the last few years. Do you enjoy yeah. it? Oh, I've got a great place to man. so fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Hawaii, I mean, how can you go? Mask no, Hawaii. There. <laughs> Siberia, man. There's, I was in Archangels this year. Yeah. Where are you going next? Oh, the next I've got a fantastic tour of the UK. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm really looking forward to it, man. Bristol, I love going there. Yeah, and somewhere else, Norwich. I haven't been to Norwich for years, man. I've been trying to get there. Then I, they used to have a really healthy scene. That whole Norfolk and Suffolk area used to have so much good stuff on yeah who influenced you or not influenced you who blew you away on the street that you saw around the world like is there any particular North Americans or European like I don't know did you work with Leo Bassi yeah yeah he's good yeah I, I'm not very good at watching people and it has to be someone like him that makes you go oh Friends Rocho in the early days that was really good stuff actually. what was that Friends yeah. Ro Friends Rocho Django Edwards' group in Amsterdam that was big then, that was like 20 people. Wow. And all clowning stuff and live music, shit-hot musicians. And here yeah, there was just mainly the judges. Well, Pookie Snackenberger, that was pretty good stuff, you know. So I've seen Stomp. Yeah. What did Pookie Snackenberger do that wasn't Stomp? Do you know, uh, not, not so many drums, more, more instruments and, and standards, you know, doing Jungle Book songs. And yeah, they, they all look good and they had the high energy and, yeah. you know, there's seven of them or something, so they made good fat noise. Yeah. Can't do that in Concord, no. You can't play brass or drums. No. So... Yeah, the regulations make it all tricky, don't they? Someone should do something about that. And fire, you know? Yeah. A lot of us learnt our stuff being able to do that. You know, stomp wouldn't happen if they well yeah. it would if they would have done it. But you know, why inhibit yeah. artistic potential in people through some you know street performing is street performing. But I think if anything, say you can't have amplifiers. Yeah, or well, that will kill me, and not because of the mic, but because of the music. Or more than whatever you need. What? <laughs> it's a funny one though, isn't it? Because I find I mean I, I go into a different energy if I'm not using a mic. You have to. You're using mm. your diaphragm more, and mm. it's the right energy for the street. And I find if everyone isn't using a mic, then it's fine. But if you're the only person not, then the, it's like the audiences don't hear you or something. What's your favourite pitch over the years? There's ones with steps down are nice, you know, where you can play those, the Met and Washington Square Park with some fun gigs there. The Mound was always great, man, mm. using the steps there. 
Covent Garden was, yeah. was just a brilliant pitch. The night shows there, I used to do night shows, and I used to play just near the end of King Street because there was a light on the second floor, a big floodlight covering yeah. the whole thing. And so I used to strip and then do the fire, but oh, it has to be dark, so I'd climb up on the outside two floors and put my coat over the light to make it go dark. Well, yeah, stuff like that was just... How late could you... I mean... Oh yeah, I used to play 10, you know, yeah. Yeah. And now you're just not allowed. Oh, you're not? I don't think so. And how did you get on at Washington Square Park? Yeah, good. What other sort of acts were working Oh, Charlie Burnett, man. Who wow, legendary guy. Incredible. See the guy that chatted on the mic? Yeah. Is no, no, he didn't have a mic. Just used to chat. And there was a guy called The Fireman. What did he do? Had fireman's costume, blue fire or something. I don't know. I couldn't <laughs> watch it. <laughs> Juggled three flaming puppies. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'd watch that. <laughs> Actually, no, not puppies. Babies, maybe. Great <laughs> 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 would you? Uh, it would be. Just need to put a bit of wick on some. Mind you, the plastic. Cloth dolls do. Cloth dolls with a bit of wick on them. That's funny. We can't, yeah. Throw a puppy in there, because I bet people would be more co- more upset about the puppy in it. But, oh, I can see what you're thinking. <laughs> <laughs> that would be funny. People would care more about the puppy. No, you see, I could do that. I could do that routine. You should do that routine. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God, juggling. Uh, Must be sure I still do juggling eat the apple, and it's so... There's a part of me that... A few years ago, when I really wasn't getting a lot of work, I went. Uh, I used to make a lot of money on the street, you know, and that's. It. Well, I learned everything. I know. Well, not everything, but I learned a lot on playing in the street. And so, thinking, oh, it'd be great to get back there. And I've done quite a few street shows that aren't booked, and just can't make money. Or I don't understand how you can still do good shows and people don't bloody pay for it anymore. And I find that quite depressing, really. I mean, it might be because it's a young man's game that you have to have that kind of... But I, I don't believe that. Cellini, he used to, Well, he wasn't a big crowd puller, but he used to do the same show. He did it for 30 years or something and just made money right up while he could Cellini? walk. Cellini? Street magician. You know, so he used to play to max 50, 100 people yeah. in a small circle. Short show, 10, 15 minutes. Slick as anything just best cups and balls routine ever I always thought that with the cups and balls is that it's the one of the best street gigs ever because you're essentially standing in front of someone saying I'm going to take your money and leave you with a smile on your face yeah. and then you do but outside of that I mean I suppose I caught the tail end of Pep being able to piss all over the big hypey acts still but just by following uh, it's the same as speaking to Living Space with Edinburgh where essentially it is far more about following and gag follow gag follow gag character all that sort of stuff but the hat is how do you actually make it financially workable and I don't know what I think Edinburgh looks like it is I think I did one show and made all right not great but I thought oh yeah you can make money yeah but even still people don't if you're not hyping it it's yeah there's one example I've seen, uh, which I think, and it's a weird one, because the same with the indoor <coughs> one, which I think is what's changing, is, is how savvy they get with the, um, the PR and the marketing um, side. And I think it's just natural to spend so much time on computers and stuff. But um, I think the Lords of Strut have kind of nailed what is the future of Good Street, because what they've got is they've got like a hype structure underneath, but on top of it, they've got really good character and clowning. So actually... 
you know, subconsciously they drive the audience in that normal get on something high, do all that shit, shout lots way. But on the other hand, they make me laugh. <laughs> if, if the scaffolding is the get on something high, talk about money, blah, 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 and you know that that's got to be the scaffolding, it's then what do you plop on top of that? And I don't know, but I think that seems to be where indoor and outdoor is going, which I also find very depressing. It depresses me because essentially it means it's a success, uh, which means I just don't understand how you're supposed to make any of it fucking work anymore. Yeah. It is sad, and you know, that's the thing that I'm finding a bit... Uh, and I'm kind of hoping Eric the Fred is the new way forward with it, and that's only going to work if I get some backing on it. Tell me more about Eric the Fred. Uh, goes from on. the mad Chris Lynham character to white-faced, bald, silent, white suit, clown, red nose, nice. in four minutes. Oh, wow. And this film of the transformation being projected. Uh, the set is a gauze at the front that gets, takes projection as a black box. So this film of the makeup, as though the camera's there and I'm back to audience making up so they see yep. back in front of that. And he works with film and himself and objects and music and the music goes kind of weird and there's some very interesting little animals that come up that I can't divulge. Surely the person to help you get the backing for that is Slava. Is he that? I mean, hang on. Let me rephrase that. So, for example, Julien Quattreau, the clown, uh, French clown. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He does the festival, the, the sort of international clown festival circuit. So it's a sort of beat down from Slava because it's a one hander. So when Slava's playing Queen Elizabeth Hall in the Royal Festival, then he's playing the Purcell rooms. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, like, Slava's playing to a thousand, he's playing to 200, but he's been brought over there. There's that whole circuit. That sounds perfect for that yeah, circuit. Yeah, yeah, So it's definitely a European yeah, yeah. booker. Well, funnily enough, the last outing <coughs> I did with him was just 20 minutes. That's all I've got of it so far, but I can see the mm. almost the whole picture. I haven't got the, the whole picture yet. But the London Mind Festival came to see it. I asked them to come and see the new piece, and they had to sit through mm. 45 and another 10 of the lunatic, which, I, uh, you know, I've had a long... I know they hate it. Some of the bookers that hate Chris Lyman, the clown. And um, I had a great positive mail back from him about Eric. He said, yeah, yeah, we'll book that. We'll book an hour of that. Brilliant. Mm. Do you find it hard that some people just don't like Chris Lyon in the clown? No, no, I totally get it. Yeah. Yeah. So in your face, really. It's yeah. A, you know, it's very... It's, it's frightening. Yeah. Which I don't see it as frightening. Yeah, see, I don't I, either, but I think that's the style of person yeah, I am. So yeah. I understand what... You mean that they mean delicate people are going to go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, If some kid that reminded you of yourself came up to you and said, I want to be a clown, what would you say to them? Uh, I think now there's all kinds of schools and courses and workshops you can go on. Because I get asked to teach a bit now, so I've been to a couple of workshops just to find out what happens in the world because I don't understand it really. Hmm. And um, Aito Basuri mm, from Spy Monkey. Monkey runs a fantastic shop. Uh, and, um, and that's Gulia. So I've been aware of Gulia only for the last couple of years, actually. And I think that kind of style of getting people to work... I mean, he might be a bit brutal for some people, but I would say just do it, really. 
you have to just do it. You, you have to want to do it enough yeah. to do it. Yeah. Otherwise, you just fucking around. Right? You're going, oh, maybe. Yeah. I mean, that's what I did. But you know, I'm quite an outgoing, brash character. So some Same. some gentle little mind might not be able to. But no, that's the thing. Yeah. Although yeah. David China did that. In the early days of street, there was David China, Peter Shubb, and I were the kings of the street. You know, was that in, in Zurich? In Zurich, yeah, that's where we used to meet for the summer. Then, you know, that was the whole time in Zurich. It was a fantastic. That's a really nice pitch, actually. Is it still a pitch? Uh, I think it's possible they've got a f- the whole surveillance, police, mm. undercover nonsense there is quite prevalent. So, and I used to get away with it because of being funny and a couple of the local shopholders like what I was doing so I'd get a bit of protection from that yeah um, a lot of people got arrested and deported and stuff from playing there even then wow and fined and all kinds of stuff <laughs> is there any other stuff you talk about one little anecdote about performing at Speaker's Corner in the early days well, so I used to blow fire, and you've seen my fire routine. There's only three blows, but the first one's just straight up in the air. The second one's between my legs. Yeah. And that one, when you blow between your legs, there's always a bit of spray that goes onto the split ass costume that I'm wearing. <laughs> I wear a split ass Victorian <laughs> women's underwear at the end of my striptease, which, in the right position, gets a glimpse of my pert little buttocks. And they are still pert. So, you know, once you've done ten shows a day or six or whatever, there's quite a bit, or maybe you did <laughs> ten the day before as well, there's quite a bit of residue on the trousers. And there's a photo that someone nicked out of my portfolio. I'm so annoyed. If you're hearing this and you've got my photo, I want it back. It's a photo of me doing this fat show in Speaker's Corner. And in the background, just behind me, are two police sergeants with the flat caps on. Yeah. Oh, no, one bobby and one flat cap on. And, um... The pants have caught on fire <laughs> through that blow, <laughs> and the photo is me dancing. So both legs are up in the air at an, an, an obtuse angle, <laughs> and these policemen behind me just hooting with laughter, <laughs> like holding their stomachs with laughter. It is such a good photo. That's a gorgeous photo. I know, yeah. My favourite photo that I've got of me street performing is me at Covent Garden. It's a wide shot, gorgeous, grainy, black and white, and I'm escaping from a straitjacket. And even my volunteer has left. (laughs) 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 Massive expanse of concrete (laughs) and just a mad woman. (laughs) I want to see Eric the Fred. Yeah, no, it's good. All right, press the piss. Boom. Tanks off. He's a bit flat, really, isn't he? No. Very good. And then I came alive again for Stories from the Pits is produced by the Busker Hall of Fame and is made possible through the generous support of listeners like you. Downloading this podcast is free, much like watching a street show. But if you haven't contributed yet, then you're kind of like one of those people who walk away at the end of a street show without paying. And those people suck. So don't be one of them. If you like what you're listening to, then please do swing by the Busker Hall of Fame website and click the Donate button. Your contributions really do help us cover the hard costs of distributing this podcast and the other great content that can be found at BuskerHallOfFame.com. Music for today's episode came from 357 Lover. Links to both songs are available in the notes section of this episode. You can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes. Simply go to the podcast library, type in Stories from the Pitch, and download away. And while you're there, please do leave some feedback, as these reviews help with our rankings and visibility. 
got a story to tell, something you think we could improve, or perhaps you're interested in becoming a sponsor of an upcoming episode. If so, drop me a line at cbg at buskerhalloffame.com. Haven't got enough Buskerhoff content yet? Well, then consider checking out our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash buskerhalloffame. You can follow us on Twitter at Busker Stories or sign up for our newsletter at the Busker Hall of Fame website. Chris's 40-plus years in the business and the influence he's had on so many performers made him an obvious candidate to be inducted into the Busker Hall of Fame. So it was interesting to capture this moment where he shared his views on being a part of an ongoing tradition. It's my line, it's my bit, it's my whatever. Are you part of that family? Do you feel there's stuff that's been appropriated? Oh, yeah. But that's the nature of the game. You know, Buster Keaton's been a huge influence on my career. Yeah. I probably have done a lot of falls because of him. Yeah. Running fallings and stuff. Yeah, there's some great picks and all that. So, you know, we're... If I start going on that, it's big, man. <laughs> <laughs> on behalf of myself, co-producer Lindsay Lindbergh, Amy Misbehave, who captured this interview, and the rest of the staff of the Busker Hall of Fame, we hope this finds you well. And as you perform for audiences around the world, please remember to use your superpowers for good. I'm David Aiken, the Checkerboard Guy. Thanks for listening. Yeah, it's been... It's been a great career, actually, in many respects. Not, you know, obviously not financially rewarding enough. <laughs> but it has been, do you know what I mean? But yeah. you always spend it long before you get it. <laughs>